The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, Trumpcast listeners, a quick message for you. Instead of our regular show, we're bringing you a special edition of the Political Gab Fest with David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and instead of John Dickerson today, I'm substituting because John is still in Las Vegas reporting after the debate. But don't worry, most of the conversation is about Donald Trump, and we'll be back with a regular show soon. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 20th, 2016, the I Will Keep You in Suspense edition. I'm David Fonts of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins me from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Such a nasty one. Oh, wait, did I say something? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Get it. Oh, dear. Uh, John Dickerson is recovering in uh, Nevada. He lost all the craps table last night, but he uh, couldn't make the show this morning, although we have a special treat from him later on. Jacob Weisberg, the chairman of the Slate Group, host of Trumpcast and regular GabFest guest, is in, in John's place. Hello, Jacob. Hey, David. You're in New York, right? I'm in New York. I, I will uh, I will not attempt to uh, to replace John's statesmanlike quality. It's tr- I don't think we could. It would be hard to find someone as statesmanlike as John to, to sit someone in for him. Someone texted me last night just to tell me they like John's tie. Oh, did you pass that on to <laughs> John? I was I like, oh, I didn't notice it. OK, yeah, great. John's a <laughs> journalist that even Vladimir Putin can respect. <laughs> on this week's GabFest, <laughs> Donald Trump's extraordinary third debate, will it change the dynamics of the race at all? Then, Trump claims the election is rigged. What does that mean? Is it rigged? How has it been rigged? What effect will his claims have on the actual election itself and afterward? Then, charges were dropped against Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! this week for her part in a, well, she didn't have a part in a protest, but for her journalism that she was doing as part of a protest near the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota, what should we make of this assault on Goodman and the general anger aimed at journalists in this country? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, a special Dickerson take on the debate phoned in from Vegas. John, as I said, wasn't able to join us, but he was able to provide his usual perspicacious analysis and criticism and commentary about the debate. And we will give you that for Slate Plus subscribers. So stay tuned. To join Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And I should mention, of course, we have a live show coming up in Boston next week. We can't wait to see you there. And for those folks who want to see us at the Bell House for our conundrum show in New York on November 30th, I'm sorry to say there are basically no tickets left. If you rush this instant, there might be a ticket or two left. But but as of time of taping, there were very few left. So, so if you do want to try to go, rush now and grab a ticket. That's November 30th at the Bell House at 7.30 for our conundrum show. Jacob, last night's debate, wow, that was, it was a on its surface, was the most normal of the debates. It was relatively straightforward. There wasn't a lot of the Dada craziness. Chris Wallace was keeping it fairly substantively oriented. But it had, I thought, one of the most disturbing moments I'd ever seen in American politics. Take it away, Jacob Weisberg, if you agree. Which was a disturbing moment, such a nasty woman? or No, no, not that. Such a nasty woman was... 
such a nasty woman was that was disturbing. Let's give that a, it's disturbing. Uh, that's but that's just that's Trump. That's just standard Trump. I, that's just him being a horrible person that we know that he is. It's the commentary about whether he would accept the results of the election. Yeah, I mean, that's the headline. I don't know. You know, in a way, I think we're all playing his game, right? I mean, Trump is saying, you know, after the election, I might just hold my breath and turn blue if I lose. And everyone's saying, oh, my God, you can't do that. No one does that after an election. But I guess my feeling is a little bit, go ahead and hold your breath as long as you want. Nobody cares. You know, he has his, his his preemptive challenge you know, and I, he's, what he's doing is being an anticipatory sore loser, right? He's already saying it was sour grapes. The election was stolen before it's even decided. We know he's going to do this, but he's not being supported in it by his own running mate, by people on his campaign, by members of his family. So I sort of feel like he just makes an even bigger idiot out of himself if he says, I don't accept the, the results. I don't think he's going to be leading protests in the street. I don't think there are going to be people out with torches and pitchforks saying the election was stolen. I mean, yeah, there are some of his people who believe that, you know, who, are, who will follow him in a zombie-like fashion. But I just don't think he has any real capacity or credibility to call the result of the election into question. I agree with all of that. And I still think it's important to have headlines about this because it is a threat to our democracy to say something like that before an election. And actually, Mike Pence did essentially defend him and say, you know, he has every right to decide at the time not to reassure us now, which I was really taken aback by. And the idea to use a word that we are using endlessly in this election, the idea of normalizing, challenging our election results, that is foundational to the democracy. And so even though I agree with you, Jacob, that Trump is playing a reality TV game, it's like he can't resist the idea of building suspense and doing something to get attention. I still feel like we have to pause and say this is out of bounds. Right, Emily. I, I agree. You can't normalize his behavior. But at some point, there's not really any surprise involved in him doing something authoritarian or fascistic. I mean, he said in the debate again, wants to jail his opponent. She's a criminal. If I was president, she'd, she'd be in jail. There's the media is, a, is part of a conspiracy against me. There's a global banker conspiracy that is, you know, driving the, the, my f- pending defeat. He's so out there with this essentially fascist rhetoric that I think at some point you just have to stop giving him your attention and start dismissing him as a total clown. He's been a clown since the beginning, and it has changed. It has gotten worse. But I don't know. I'm starting to feel like we're playing into his hands by being outraged every time. Playing into his little hands. Well, we're going to have a whole other topic (laughs) around the rigging question. So let's talk more generally about Mm. this debate. Emily, did you see anything in this debate that suggested that the dynamics of the presidential race could shift at all in the last few weeks? Did anything come up that was surprising or uh, alarming or exciting um, for you? I didn't see any new territory, really. I mean, I felt like they were both doing the same things they'd done at the previous debate and both being true to their candidacies. So Trump gets in his lines that appeal to his base. He has trouble providing any real detail once he's kind of 
said his big billboard headline. He didn't take advantage of some of the WikiLeaks material that I thought was just like low-hanging fruit for him. I mean, there was that weird line about how like John Podesta says mean things about you, but it was again that kind of insidery thing he does, which Jacob has talked about in the past, where like, unless you're really, f- I didn't know what he was talking about. So you have to really be following the ball bouncing. And he had that like quid pro quo line he could have used from, you know, this exchange between the State Department and the FBI over classifying Clinton's emails. And he didn't go there. So again, he didn't seem very skillful about bringing up issues on his own. And I guess the moment that excited me personally was the opening of the debate. I felt like Hillary Clinton had some real fire in her belly about defending women's right to abortion. And she was talking about it in a way where she seemed to be thinking about real women and the dilemmas they face and in a serious but also heartfelt way um, explaining, you know, why Trump's characterization of late term abortion in this very like caustic language of ripping babies out of the womb, why that kind of language is deeply unfair to women who actually face those choices. And I just felt like she was embodying her feminist role in that moment in a way that I haven't really seen her do since the convention. What about you, Jacob? Was there anything that you saw substantively or even stylistically in the debate that made you think this could shift the dynamic of the presidential race? Well, I think we can now look at the all three debates as, as a piece. And I think Hillary pursued a strategy throughout that was really effective. It was a goading strategy. You know, I think she tried to figure out where his buttons were and started pressing them in all three debates. And, you know, you could pretty much set your watch by how long it would take for her to get under his skin. And last night, again, it was, I think, just under the half hour mark, you know, is when she called him Putin's puppet. You know, and he said, you're a puppet. Who's puppet? But it was just at that point, he was riled. And from that point, she was just pressing more buttons. And he was responding in this way he always responds when he he gets riled. And I think in some, that was a really effective way to for her to go at the debates. I mean, his numbers have moved, you know, many points, like six or seven points in the course of the debates. It's not just the debates, but those are the event, events everybody's seen. And you can say on the one hand that it's his outrageous bad behavior and the, and the sexual assault scandal and all the horrible things he's done that have turned the country more against him. But it's also she was really effective, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't a given that what you would try to do was goad Trump into making an ass out of himself. But she did that. She did it in a disciplined way. It worked in all three debates. And I thought it worked again, basically like clockwork last night. Yeah, it is pretty extraordinary when you sort of step back and think, you know, this is a man who in the past few weeks has admitted not having paid federal income taxes for 20 years, essentially, and has used a tax break to get out of paying federal taxes, has not released his taxes, has been shown to be a complete fraud when it comes to charitable donations and his foundation, been caught on tape saying the most disgusting things possible about women, has then been accused credibly by 12 different women, I think now, of criminal sexual assault, essentially, with without any reasonable response. And yet that it's still even a thing that we can talk about, that there's still that he still has 8% in a silver rating seems to me pretty astonishing, given how terrible the last month has been for him. And the debates are a small piece of it, but there's been so much other terrible news. And yet he is not, he's not in the grave. 
Yeah. There's always a word in my head about Trump after uh, after I see him have a prolonged exposure. It's a new word. And for some reason, the word last night was nuisance. You know, he's like the <laughs> guy. He, he's a deadbeat. He doesn't pay his bills. He doesn't pay his taxes. He doesn't he, he doesn't pay his workers. He has, he assaults women. He's rude. And he's just kind of like he's just this sort of unpleasantness that everybody has to deal with because of this antisocial behavior that goes across everything. He's a nuisance in every respect. He threatens to sue everybody, and then he does sue a lot of those people. He just – and it's a little bit the same thing with saying that he won't – he's not saying he will accept the result. What's he doing there? He's just putting us on notice that he always has the ability to make himself a nuisance. Well, that also makes me think of one of the worst implications of his statement that he won't commit to accepting the results of the election, which is like, we're all so ready for this campaign cycle to be over. And the prospect (laughs) of like 48 hours more of grumpy Donald Trump on TV railing. I just keep pledging to myself that if he loses this election, I am never listening to a word he says ever again. I assume there's a whole category of people who who are supporting him because they still have some hope the Republicans can hold the presidency and they want to protect as much of the down ballot as they can. But the minute the For sure. the minute the, the race is over, even if he's not calling it, the minute the race is over, these people are just gone. They are out. They will have nothing to do with him. And that 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 whatever and also people are going to stop talking to his surrogates. I mean, the things that his surrogates go and have to and say, first of all, they they lie about what he said. And second of all, then they, you know, they have to defend these things that he said in ridiculous ways. And they will will stop having to hear from them all the time. If I have to if I have to see Kellyanne Conway or that woman <laughs> uh, who's on CNN or Jeffrey Lord ever again, it will be too oh, soon. Jeffrey Lord. <laughs> that woman. Careful there, David. Of all the good SNL skits of this campaign season, my favorite is the Kelly Conway on her day off one where she finally is just like, yeah, he's a lying, terrible person. Ha ha. (laughs) Emily, what do you think? How have the debates set Hillary Clinton up for her her election victory? Is there anything that that she has said or done in these debates that you think tell us about what what she's going to be doing as president? Well, I think it's clear that she has this real commitment to what she calls working families. I mean, the line at the end last night, and I thought she handled that last minute well, where she said, you know, being a helping or being a champion of of women and families and working families has been my life's work. Well, that's true. And her transition team is stocked with people like um, Heather Bushi, who's the chief economist on that team. And that's their specialty. And there is a way you could put together a package of different things, family and sick leave and addressing the gender pay gap, child care tax credits, etc. And you could get to something that would be essentially a new social safety net for working people. So uh, that seems real to me. I was wondering last night whether what, it was a good how is idea. She gonna, that, the Republic, will there be a Republican? Not a single Republican would vote for that. That only works if she has a House majority somehow. I mean, maybe that's true. It's also true that those are really popular measures. And especially if you came up with a way to package them. Um, you know, one thing Trump has shown us is that there is a Republican audience for addressing these issues. I mean, he his maternity leave policy is a problem because it's only for mothers, not fathers, and it's only six weeks long, et cetera. But he made a big deal of it. Um, this is like the, the uh, there are many things to um, fault Ivanka Trump for, but this is actually 
she demonstrated in the applause she got in her convention speech and in pushing him to take the stand that there is bipartisan support for this. So you may totally be right. I mean, the House is going to prevent her from doing anything, but I still think this is a priority for her. I did wonder about that moment last night where she said she wouldn't add a penny to the federal debt. Like, was that really very smart? And if I understood TPP better, I might be concerned. I don't know. I I can't make up my mind about that trade agreement and how bad it is for it not to pass. I find it to be kind of a maze still. Jacob, we have three weeks left in the election. Last night, in addition to Trump having this bizarre performance or the usual Trumpian performance, he also pulled more of his antics in the pre-debate run-up where he brought in Barack Obama's estranged half-brother, or he brought in weird guests designed to goad and irritate people. They're conducting the last few weeks of this campaign as a sort of almost like a Breitbart piece of performance art somehow. Is there any chance we're going to get a reprieve from this horror nonsense, carnival grotesque that Trump is running? Or are we just going to have more of that for the next few weeks? Yeah, I think it's going to be, if anything, worse. I mean, the, the circus tickets aren't selling. Right. So what do you do? You keep bringing in these new circus acts, but people are liking those less rather than more. And so you have this, you know, spectacle of the elderly carnival barker in decline, losing his audience. Um, there's almost a kind of pathos to it, but there's certainly a desperation to it. But, you know, I just think the patience, he's used up any available patience he has in the media, in the public, his chance of persuading anybody he hasn't already persuaded seems like it's pretty close to zero. So what's he trying to do? I guess if he if he wants to minimize the margin of his defeat, he's got to try to turn out his base, you know, these people who are going to vote for him no matter what he does or, or says. Uh, so I think he'll keep trying to get attention, but I don't know he'll get the attention. One other thing, David, I thought was just worth remarking on about last night um, I thought Chris Wallace did a solid job, particularly in sort of controlling Trump and trying to control the candidates. But I thought the the questions were so strikingly right wing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he, he asked about Agreed. entitlements. That's a conservative question about the debt. That has, a cons- has all sorts of loaded conservative arguments embedded in it about abortion. He did not ask about climate change. He did not ask about economic inequality. He did not ask about poverty. You know, I thought he thought he would have bent over a little bit in the other direction to seem like he was coming from some sort of place of neutrality and not from the concerns of Fox News viewers. Yeah, can we just note how insane it is that we're going through three debates and not a single question about climate change? <laughs> It was crazy. I wish Clinton had just brought it up just to, like, note its absence and and its importance. Yeah, it was shocking. Yeah. Donald Trump has not retreated from his claim that the election is being rigged against him. Of course, as we just discussed, Trump has talked a lot about voter fraud, about these millions of people being registered to vote who oughtn't to be registered to vote. His surrogates have been piling on this idea. Rudy Giuliani, disgusting Rudy Giuliani, is saying that that inner city votes can't be trusted. Jeffrey Lord, disgusting Jeffrey Lord, has also said there's no guarantee that when he casts his vote for Donald Trump that that vote will be recorded. This is, of course, absolute nonsense, Emily. It is it is vile uh, nonsense, but it is has a real effect on how people think about democracy, doesn't it? 
Yes, I suppose it does. I mean, something like 40% of Republicans are now is saying in polls that they're not sure that the votes will be counted accurately. I mean, I think the other thing to remember is that it taps in to our memories of Bush versus Gore and the very real questions about the Florida recount that surfaced then. And I should say, you know, ever since then, people who follow elections and worry about how they're administered and the various, you know, changes to computerized systems and how well all of that's happened, like, there are concerns about how American elections happen. But the way to address them is not to try to call into question the entire system. And also, obviously, Trump's not talking about, you know, whether the machines operate properly. He's trying to raise these specters of voters who support Democrats, in particular, black voters, and some idea that, you know, in Philadelphia, where there are heavily African American precincts that went for Obama, and will presumably go for Clinton, that there's some monkey business going on, as opposed to the fact that he just doesn't have support in those communities. I do think that there is a way in which all of this backfires against him because people come out to vote when they feel like their right to vote is threatened. And in the end, I bet on election day, the Clinton folks are going to be more organized with their poll folks and their lawyers than the Trump side will be in trying to intimidate people. I'm sure that's the case. Given that there is this, generally it does backfire when you tell people their vote is suspicious. Why do you think Trump is doing it, Jacob? When he says the election are rigged, is rigged, I think there's three different things that can mean. One level that can mean votes are being stolen, you know, black people, inner city precincts, people voting twice, people who aren't legally allowed to vote. Level two, the media and Hillary Clinton are in a conspiracy to be unfair to me and poison people's minds against me. That's level two. Level three is the whole system, our economic system is rigged against working people, my supporters, and that because everything's rigged, of course, elections are, are rigged too. And that's where it sort of, you know, can start to dovetail with a Bernie Sanders view of the world or a left-wing view of the world. When you ask Trump, which of those things do you mean when the uh, you say the election is rigged? He says, yes. He wants to mean all of them. So he's leaving himself every available out when he loses the election to claim that it was rigged. Whether he will turn that in the direction of the racially subtexted votes are being stolen in Philadelphia and Cleveland in black precincts, or he will just say the whole thing was unfair because Hillary Clinton and the media were poisoning everybody's minds against me. I don't know. It depends on what he eats for breakfast, day of the week, how he's asked the question. But he's just sort of he's saying it's rigged in every possible way that it could that the word could mean anything. One of the things that is so striking about this election is that college educated voters have swung so sharply towards the Democratic presidential candidate. And that if you look at the demographics of the electorate, it's going to be that the less educated and mostly the poorer you are, the more likely you will be to vote for Donald Trump among whites. Wait a second. I don't think that 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 is borne out, actually, because there's been coverage that Trump supporters have like a higher than average income, that they're at like 72,000 and that the average is 60,000. I think it's lack of education, not lack of money. Okay. I'm citing a Vox piece, which we can circulate, but I was surprised by that. As the Republican electorate becomes less educated, but maybe it's not becoming poorer, but it's becoming less educated. Is there any chance the Republicans are going to abandon this anti-voter 
crusade they've had for so long? Is it possible that their voters are going to become the unreliable voters and therefore they're going to want to get rid of these attempts to squeeze voters that they've been so eager to to apply when it's been going after minority voters and Democratic voters? I just think this is the current state of racial code and electoral politics, you know, and you have to look at this in the context of American history on voter suppression and keeping African-Americans from voting. There's, there's direct continuity with that. And that's why under the Voting Rights Act, you know, there's a test of whether a, a new a change in voting law uh, it has a disparate impact on minority vote, reducing the minority vote. And if it doesn't, it's thrown out. Although, as Emily can explain better than I can, recent Supreme Court decision buttresses that somewhat and what it lowers the bar essentially to change voter law in a way that could make it harder for African-Americans and minorities to vote. Yeah, that's all true. So I wrote a piece about rigging last summer, which was like a little too early in a funny way. Um and one of the clear uses of the words historically is African-Americans using it about the poll taxes and literacy tests that used to keep them away from the polls. There's a quote from John Lewis where he's talking about how 2% of black people were registered to vote in Selma in, I think, 1962. And so that's the real history that Trump is tapping into here. And these questions about the Voting Rights Act and the degree to which it's been neutered as a protection against dismantling the Voting Rights Act, that's like a big looming issue for courts, because you're right that the Supreme Court decision in 2013 in Shelby County took away essentially pre-changed the law Department of Justice oversight. But we still have the part that's supposed to prevent changes from having a disparate impact if minority voters can show that, in fact, that is the effect it's having. And so there have been some pretty interesting rulings from states like North Carolina, for example, um, trying to still give the Voting Rights Act some teeth. And that's going to be really interesting to watch going forward. Calling elections that are rigged free elections is really bad. But I think that calling free elections rigged elections is just as bad that it ultimately has a real effect down the line on the confidence that Americans have in institutions, in government, and thus it's a morally wicked act to imply that these elections are not free and fair. But do you guys share that belief that this crumbles the concrete of the foundation a little bit? That was well said, David. I think it is both a reflection and a further exacerbation of the living in alternate realities quality to American political culture, that elections are rigged or fundamentally unfair, is now something you can choose to believe. And the answer to that is not more evidence, because I choose to believe it, and I believe that your evidence is uh, an expression of your biased political views on the other side. And that was a pre-existing condition that Trump has seized on and made dramatically worse. And I think part of the outcome of this election is that you have a kind of a faction on the right, a populist nationalist faction that remains impervious to factual reality on a on a matter like this. The question I think is, is that faction going to be allowed to be a central component of the Republican Party or will they be exiled to a wing, not really allowed in the party? Or will this remain the core or one of the two cores of the Republican Party? And that's 
going to be an interesting post-election question. Isn't there also a question about how committed and how big a group this is? I mean, I keep wondering if some of it is just going to fade, that it's been sort of irritated and brought to the surface like a rash by this campaign cycle, but that it'll kind of ebb, especially if the economy continues to do okay slash better. Um, although to just undermine what I said, I do think that, that if we continue to have a kind of hollowing out of places in the country, you know, of rural America, of places where mostly white people live and used to have the kinds of jobs union jobs, let us remind ourselves, that gave people steady incomes and benefits, but also, I think, a greater sense of pride than some of the replacement service economy jobs seem to be offering, that that is going to continue to be this question. And and the last thing that I keep struggling with is this deep issue of how much we are seeing fear and resentment over the way in which the country is changing demographically, and whether this is like a last gasp of white people who are afraid of those changes or whether it's going to continue to play out in a way that really is virulent and hurts the country seriously. Lord David, I don't think the question is whether there's still a place for Trumpism, Sean Hannity, white nationalism in the Republican Party. I think there's a question of whether anything else can thrive in the Republican Party, whether whether Reaganism and the, the, what have been the views of the Republican Party for 35 years has a fighting chance anymore, because I don't think rank-and-file Republicans support those free trade, pro-immigration, smaller government, lower taxes views. I think that's the minority faction now, and sort of Hannity is probably the most popular figure or represents the popular view after the election. Yeah, well, that, that's what's so odd is that we've become accustomed to – basically a 50-50 country and that the, the parties adjust themselves. They re, uh, resort themselves. They move slightly to the right to grab that 51st percent. And they are very strategic about that. But if that balance disappears, what are we going to do? I mean, if, the, if we have a Republican, a rump Republican party in Paul Ryan, which doesn't represent the majority views of the majority of the party, and then you have a Hannity wing, and then you have a Democratic party, which is largely coherent, does that mean that we'll have two parties? Does it mean that there's a actual third party that emerges? It can't, a third party can't emerge in our system. It's not possible for it to emerge. But nor does it seem possible for the Republicans to be a minority white nationalist party for decades. That also doesn't make sense. So I don't know how you, how that gets back into balance. Well, look what happened to the Republicans after 1964 when they had this historic defeat, right? The party was very divided between the Goldwater Republicans and the sort of Rockefeller Republicans, the liberal Republicans, and they, they fought like cats and dogs. But it only got sorted out when you had a figure, Ronald Reagan, after, 16 years after that, who appealed to both of them. And Clinton did the same thing in the Democratic Party, Bill Clinton in 1992, where he could talk in a way that everybody thought they he agreed with them. And they all thought there was something in it and they sort of agree. They sort of figured out how to elide their differences and get behind a candidate. But I don't think that happens in four years. I think that happens in a decade or more. Although one of the things that is going to be weird, most likely, is that the Republican Party will still control the House of Representatives. This Republican incoherent, chaotic, divided Republican Party will be the effective legislative veto, which wasn't true in the 60s. In the 60s, they lost everything, and the Democrats had free run of the place for four years. 
And I don't think that's going to be the case now. And that may make their behavior different than you would expect. Yeah, they could lose the House and or they could they could lose enough seats that they have a slim margin. And then people who vote at the margin, Republicans who might vote with Democrats, have suddenly have a lot of leverage and a lot of power. And Hillary Clinton, who, as you've pointed out, is a very transactional politician, is very interested in doing business with Republicans and making deals. You know, that dynamic becomes very interesting. Can you pry some Republicans away? I think it's a lot easier to pry Republicans to vote with Democrats on certain things in a fraction divided party than it is in a Republican party that's unified. Except there's so few Republicans who represent districts with sizable numbers of Democratic voters. And so what most Republicans worry about is a primary challenge from the right. I mean, the the redistricting and the gerrymandering has kind of changed the incentives, hasn't it? That's all true, Emily. But I think, you know, we've been thinking about a Congress with a 35 vote majority or more. And if you have a single digit majority, yeah, you can probably find half a dozen uh, Republicans who are more worried about being beaten by a Democrat than they are about being primary and beaten by a Republican. TBD. Amy Goodman, the host of Democracy Now!, the radio program, the host and producer of it, a very interesting and bold journalist, was covering a protest in North Dakota in early September, a protest that, uh, led by mostly by Native American activists who were upset about a pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, that will move oil and gas out of North Dakota to other places where it can be refined. This pipeline would take a route quite near the reservation and under the watershed of the reservation or under the water access of of the reservation. The protest became violent largely because the security set dogs and I think pepper spray on the protesters. Goodman was filming and interviewing people. Goodman, who is certainly very sympathetic to the protesters, was filming and interviewing protesters. This proceeded. And then come uh, a few weeks later, she was charged first with criminal trespass, and then those charges were dropped, and then she was charged with participating in a riot, that her journalism was seen as participating in a riot. This week, a judge in North Dakota refused to allow those charges to go forward, so Goodman is a is free of any charges in North Dakota, but this prosecutor who went after her is unrepentant and uh, has said fairly outrageous things, if you're a journalist, about what she was doing and and claiming that her role as a journalist was compromised and that she was committing criminal acts while she was reporting on the story. Emily, what is wrong? Is it was there anything wrong with what Goodman was doing? No, there was nothing wrong with what Goodman was doing. But I think the outrage she generated among, you know, prosecutors and law enforcement officials in North Dakota has to do with this fundamental question about who journalists are. I mean, Amy Goodman is no like, you know, like gonzo blogger. She has her own show, but she is a journalist who also has a point of view and is in some ways also doing advocacy. And I think the fact that, you know, what the prosecutor said about her was she's a protester. And that idea that journalists who have a strong point of view are not really journalists, there are other examples of that. I mean, there is this kind of wrestling the culture is doing right now with, is everybody a journalist? You know, what about that older idea of like the Walter Cronkite objective journalist who stays nicely behind his desk and 
presents what seem like fully centrist views all the time. What do we do about the democracy now, Fox News approach? Are these people reporters who have the same who get the same kind of leeway. The press never has more rights than anyone else. But on the other hand, it expects to be treated with a certain kind of deference that would avoid something like a criminal trespass charge for going on private property if you're filming a protest. And I think these public officials in North Dakota were just saying, like, we just don't buy this. Jacob, when in the course of doing work should journalists be protected from prosecution is it are there any circumstance in which a journalist doing their job should be criminally prosecuted for things that they're doing sure if you steal evidence from a crime scene um if you you know interfere with the delivery of emergency services i mean you know the the police in new york city and everywhere else do credential press so they can sort of have an idea who they're going to allow around police barricades in a crisis situation to let them have some access. But they also know that those people are going to abide by certain rules about letting the police and fire and so on do their jobs. I don't think she violated that. I don't think it's any issue here. I mean, this is just local officials behaving atrociously. But in an interesting way, one thing that's so interesting to me about it is the way that extractive industries undermine democratic values. And this is a well-known phenomenon at a high level. You know, a country like Nigeria or Russia or Middle East countries tend not to be democracies and have a very hard time transitioning to democracies. But I think you also see in democratic countries, in democratic systems, the wealth generated by extractive industries is so vast that the owners tend to organize their power and protect their, their power in a way that crosses just basic lines about freedom of expression and legal process. And they, they tend to behave like bullies and dictators. And that's what these North Dakota prosecutors are doing with Amy Goodman. They see someone who's, who's on the other side, but is, of course, a journalist. She's a partisan journalist. And they think, what law can we use to throw her in jail and punish her for hurting our, uh, the pipeline we want to build? Why do you think it's extractive industries? I mean, there are plenty of extremely profitable businesses in the United States that are not extractive industries that are more profitable, probably. I mean, Exxon is an extremely profitable company, but there are there are a lot of other companies. Apple is a very profitable company that is not based on a mineral extraction, but it doesn't it doesn't have the same uh, animosity towards the free press. Right. Maybe well, there, it does. There is there is some, because you're physically scarring the landscape and <laughs> taking, you know, ripping up the land and threatening people's, well, you know, water well, supply. And in this case, also like the cultural significance of this I, I mean, I, in, in, in a country like Nigeria or, or in Chad, uh, where you have huge mineral wealth that comes, I think one of the, the reasons that, that they have problems with democracy is that these are this is generally wealth that comes not from actual human capital and enhancing it's not from giving people skills or education it's not from the productivity of the citizens and the participation of citizens in doing something to to create this wealth it is is a pure it's a it's a luck it's winning the lottery basically and you can see why when you win the lottery it doesn't necessarily instill in people the values of hard work and cooperation and enterprise that help create all these other beneficial effects in in 
societies. And, and th- this is the, the, the South Korea example people always use. South Korea is a country with no natural resources, becomes incredibly wealthy basically because it builds a great education system. People work super hard and that has all these knock-on beneficial effects. The United States is not a third world uh, kleptocracy. The United States and even North Dakota is not a third world kleptocracy. It has a functioning government. It's part of a very well-functioning nation. Why would that phenomenon you're describing manifest itself in the U.S., do you think? In parts of the U.S. that are dominated by extractive industries like coal mining, you see a lot of inequality. I mean, you see an oligarchy of people in control of coal mining or strip mining or mountaintop mining. And then you see a lot of people getting work, but it often is work that involves um, suffering of them personally, like health problems and not well-paid work. And also the landscape is wounded and scarred by it as well. And people have to live every day with the effects of that. Yeah, it's very striking. I mean, this this whole scene, it, it seemed like a scene from an Upton Sinclair novel, like it's something from the 1920s. But then it was tended to be more about labor organizing. And now it's about environmentalism primarily. It's It's classic class war. Right. You have owners who have a lot of control over the legal system and the political process resisting the people who are the workers, the protesters and the journalists who are on their side, who are not, in fairness, to be clear, covering this as neutrals describing a conflict, but as part of the movement trying to oppose the capitalists. Let's go back to what Goodman was doing. Is any random person who is doing something on Facebook Live at a protest, do they qualify as long as they themselves are not, uh, you know, throwing rocks and uh, attacking the police? Do they qualify as a journalist? Do you have to be credentialed? Do you have to work for an outlet that is has a wide audience? Do you have to have a history of it? Do you have to have, have training? I mean, legally speaking, that question doesn't really matter because journalists don't get special privileges. So I'm, I feel like we get hung up on this idea, but I don't know why why we care so much about it. Well, journalists do get pr- special privileges in some places, right? Uh, what's a shield law, Emily? I mean, a shield law is, is something that says if you are recognized as a journalist, you get certain protections around your relationship with your sources. I agree that the First Amendment applies to everybody. You shouldn't apply to journalists in any special way. But it's not true that journalists never ask for special privileges. That's true. And then the court decisions about those media shield laws get into big struggles about this question of definition because it requires judges essentially to be certifying who is and isn't a journalist. And that in itself is an uncomfortable position for judges to be in. And so it's this unresolved question. Yeah. And because we don't want to go there, we because we don't want the government to decide who is and who isn't legitimately a journalist, although they do often have to decide who to issue credentials to. But unless we want the government making that decision, I think we have to say that a journalist is someone who sees him or herself practicing journalism. That is, if you think you're a journalist, you are a journalist, and you it would be very nice if you accepted the responsibilities that go with being a journalist. But we don't want anybody on the outside, especially government, deciding who is and who isn't. Do you think that James O'Keefe and the Gonzo sting operations he carries out deserve the same protections that an Amy Goodman deserves? He's doing things sub rosa, not identifying himself as a journalist. He's disguising himself filming people without their permission 
in one case, he broke into Mary Landrieu's office and was arrested and and convicted of of a break in. Effectively, do you think he he is the same person as Mary as Amy Goodman is? He's not the same person, but he deserves the same protections. And so, you know, you asked before, when should journalists be prosecuted? Well, if you break into someone's office, that's breaking and entering. If Amy Goodman did that, I think she could be prosecuted too. Amy Goodman. I, I don't actually know the details of this, but if she is engaged in criminal trespass, if she's walking across private property in the course of this protest as she's interviewing people, is she as subject to arrest as everyone else who is walking across that land that, that might be private property? Yeah, because journalists are still subject to the laws of the land. And I think the reason that criminal trespass charge fell apart was that it the, it didn't actually meet the statutory requirements for being criminal trespass. Right. You can abuse the law to persecute journalists. You can say you arrest them for loitering. You know, there are there are all sorts of laws. Well, you don't want laws like this on the books, but that are, you know, you can you can always find a reason to arrest somebody yes. and bring them in. But it's it is trumped up charge. I mean, br- charging her with rioting, which has now been dismissed as a trumped up charge. Journalists don't have any license to break the law, but prosecutors also shouldn't have license to use the law to break journalists. Yes. Exactly. Right. I get that's what's so interesting. So I, what if there was a group that was breaking into um, a, a U.S. Army air base and she was reporting on this group that's breaking into a U.S. Army air base and they're breaking in because they want to commit sabotage and they want to, you know, uh, put sugar in the fuel lines of F-16s and she accompanies them. That is, I'm sure, some that is certainly a felony to break into a U.S. Army air base. I'm certain of it. Is she someone who should be prosecuted for that, even if she's just doing it as in the course of covering news? Well, there should and can. So she certainly could be prosecuted for that. You don't get any free pass in that situation. And I think if you're a journalist who wants to go along for that ride, it's sort of like civil disobedience. You have to decide whether you're willing to pay the criminal penalty. Now, whether a prosecutor should exercise his or her discretion to um, file charges like that, that's a different question that goes to what Jacob's talking about and this kind of back and forth between how much freedom we want the media to have and how much authority we want the government to exercise. And because prosecutors always have so much discretion, there are some play in the joints there. But you certainly, if you're, when journalists commit crimes or participate in the committing of crimes, they should think through very carefully whether they're willing to go to jail for them. Yeah, I guess it's if a prosecutor perceives that your journalism is designed to abet and encourage and help this uh, criminal act, then you can imagine a prosecutor saying, screw it, I'm going to prosecute them. They're not simply there to to cover the story in a, in, in a as news. They're there to make the story news. And that Right. One distinction we should make, because there's actually a Supreme Court case on this, I think it might be called Bartnicki, but I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. If you publish stolen material, so in other words, like somebody, you know, hacks or whatever, and the the journalist has essentially this ill-gotten gains, that's protected by the First Amendment, the actual publication of it. So the court drew a line between the journalist's doing the stealing and hacking versus receiving the material and printing it. Right. I've always wondered about the the much harder cases, it seems to me, are when journalists nod, nod, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, encourage people to commit acts knowing that they're going to benefit from it. Does the journalist have any 
culpability there. I don't know. Yeah, at your own peril. That is that is something that starts to get into very tricky territory. Well, what's an example of that? I'm just not sure what you're thinking about. Um, people who know that someone is a whistleblower and sort of encourage someone wants to be a whistleblower and encourage them, you know, maybe you want to get some better data to get me. You have a source who you know has access. A source comes to you and says they have a story, but you know you don't have the story yet because you need documentation. You need something more than this person talking about it. You sort of say, you know, it would be really better if you had if you had the the meeting minutes um, from that you know, classified and, double top secret meeting. And then the source With- goes and gets that for you where you've basically encouraged that act of theft. You haven't done it. And you've you've just right. tried to make your story better. I think that happens. I I feel that that is something that happens, and I don't know whether yeah, the journalist has culpability for that. for that. That was sort of the WikiLeaks Chelsea Manning scenario, right? Yes, wasn't with with, with um, WikiLeaks and Chelsea Manning. There was there was a suggestion that maybe they could go after WikiLeaks because it had encouraged Chelsea Manning to steal the information. Yeah, I think that's right. Can I say one thing about the Sioux and the the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation? I just hadn't known anything, I'm embarrassed to say, about this Dakota pipeline. And part of the reason I think Amy Goodman was there and that it's turned into a major protest is that this pipeline was supposed to cross the Missouri River in a different place near Bismarck. But then... They were worried about how an oil spill could affect the drinking water supply in Bismarck. So they moved it a half a mile from the reservation. And it's on land that was taken from the tribe in the 50s without the tribe's consent. I mean, and this is all happening with like permits from the U.S. Army of Engineers. And it's now tied up in federal court with the question of whether the army um, really consulted with the tribe or not. And uh, there just seems I mean, it's like the point Jacob made earlier about how this is like an Upton Sinclair novel. I just can't believe that the federal government run by President Obama, who has not commented on this case, is participating in essentially threatening the culture and environmental land that is so near this reservation. Like, why? Why is this necessary? Why is this well, still happening? I, I, look, I don't I'm not going to defend the particulars in this case because I haven't studied them enough. But if you have a pipeline, it has to go through land. It has to cross people's land. There's not a there's not a vast area of the country which is nobody's land and you can just put pipelines and railroad tracks and and all the stuff you don't want. Anytime you place something, you place it across or next to land that belongs to somebody and they generally don't want it. Nobody wants a pipeline running through their land. And what what But this what, is just and so what, classic like well, you don't want to threaten the city so then you threaten yeah, the yes, Native Americans a, a, in, in this fa- like yes, pe- in, small yes, corner that yes, they've been left. Fa- just, exactly. Too, yes. No. You know why? Because you don't the, the <laughs> same reason you don't put a nuclear power plant in the middle of Manhattan. It's because if a nuclear but, but, if a <laughs> nuclear power plant explodes in the middle of Manhattan, you have you know, ten million dead people. If it explodes, you know, wherever they up up the Hudson, a hundred miles, it you have ten thousand dead people, and it's it, those but are decisions that see, are made all the time. Dare I use the phrase environmental racism? I mean, I hate sounding so left wing today, but you know, Please. these are people who don't have political power. They can't fight it. It gets it it the pipeline goes across their reservation. I mean, that's yes. It's it's not just the place where it does the, the the least potential damage it's the place where it does the least potential damage to people who have financial and political power sure that's absolutely the case it is absolutely the case that but that's that, not that, good that, david that in, 
why are you like, oh, that's how it happens. So like, yeah, go ahead, please wreck the reservation I, because there are fewer people who live there. And oh, by the way, they're all Native American. Well, I, I actually do think if there are fewer people, that, if if in fact the damage, if you do a, a utilitarian calculus and you say that the place where this pipeline does the least damage is and it runs across, you know, this reservation and you and this everyone agrees that this pipeline is a net benefit for for society then then i think you can say we're going to run this across the, the the reservation i think that's fine that's we we've run into a situation in this country where it's very hard to get land to do big public works projects and so whenever whenever anything gets built i'm sort of like in favor of anything basically you really want to defend this pipeline, which I don't is like know enough about this. I don't know enough about super this. hard to get out of the tar I, sands in Alberta, Canada, and is going across a half a mile from a Sioux reservation. Like that's the public works well, project I don't think, you want to get behind I, while you're having well, like a question this, about fair no, compensation. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think I don't know enough about the facts of this case. I do not know, and I'm sure I'm going to get a ton of nasty messages all about how wrong I am. <laughs> but I absolutely think, like I don't think the fact head. that it's running half a mile from a Sioux reservation is in itself an interesting or deplorable fact. I just don't know. That, wait, that, wait, wait, wait. You don't see any cultural significance def- given the history of how we treat no, because Native it, Americans no, in this country? No, I don't. It's what? half a mile from a reservation. Lots of things are half a mile from reservations all over the country. Ugh. There are highways that run through oh reservations. God. There's a, like, Emily, that, that's, it may well be that this particular, that it's running through a particularly culturally treasured land or it's particularly endangering people who are there, but it might not be. Just the fact that it is half a mile from, from reservation land does not in itself to me mean anything. It might mean something. It might not. Yeah, but it well, de- they, but the definitely, people who listen. live there do not want yeah, it to the be there. Who live and there they don't see want it to be it there. And you know, the people, the people and of Bismarck and the people of Bismarck didn't want it to be near Bismarck. The same, the same thing. Right. And there are more people in Bismarck with more political power, like Jacob said. Yeah. I am. Just and if there are more people in Bismarck, if there are more people views, in Bismarck whose all. water is going to be contaminated by a pipeline spill, then it's, it seems totally legitimate. In fact, probably right to therefore not run the pipeline near where they their water could get contaminated. The only calculus here is not the pure, cold, hyper-rational, utilitarian calculus. There are other factors to take into account. Well, you know, I, like I, you I weirdly blinding yourself. I, I feel like the purpose. The purpose, I don't even think you really the purpose of environmental impact statements and the purpose <laughs> of this kind of regulation and this kind of uh, r- rational test is actually to be hyper-rational about it. Actually, I do kind of think that that's the purpose, is to no, be as rational as possible. there's a requirement in the about law about consulting with the tribe, and there's a question about whether the Army Corps of Engineers actually did that. Now, right. the one fact that sure. is on your side sure. is that a federal judge ruled last week that they did yeah. adequately and, consult, and, 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 and I am not and sure as, why. And as I said— But still— And as I said, Emily, in the particulars of this case, I could totally be wrong because I have not studied. <laughs> I could totally be wrong, but I and just yet, don't think— like, I just don't think that, ne- that it is necessarily true that because it is running half a mile from reservation that it is the wrong place to put it. Uh, how about we might want to just like tread really, really carefully and take very seriously the concerns of the Native Americans who live on this reservation and near it and think about all the things we have plundered from them forever and, and a day. And as you should take we. very I don't seriously, even be in the as you should take very seriously pronoun. the concerns of the, the people of Bismarck who are whose watershed is at risk. 
So maybe we don't have this pipeline at all. I don't know enough about the geography of North Dakota. It does seem to me like not a state that doesn't have some empty spaces in it. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Anyway, some people from North Dakota should write into us with a better plotted pipeline route. I had to get out the popcorn for that one. That was a great. That was a great <laughs> argument. Doesn't I thought all of North Dakota has like the population of my block in Manhattan. It is amazing they can't find somewhere yeah. for a pipeline. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Let's put the pipeline through your block in Manhattan, Jacob. See how you feel then. I think it does run under. They're re- they're repairing it most days. <laughs> Uh, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're watching the pipeline be built outside your front porch, Emily, what are you going to be chattering about to the Bazelons? I'm going to maybe try to avoid actually chattering about this topic because my children, at least in my family, they will not want to hear about this. But I am following with great fascination the defamation trial against Rolling Stone that's happening in Charlottesville this week. Nicole Aramo is the dean at the University of Virginia who was part of the Rolling Stone rape story that collapsed. She has sued for defamation. And what I'm awaiting, and maybe this will be on Thursday or Friday, is to finally hear from Jackie, the UVA student who gave the story at the center of the article about being gang raped, which a story that has completely fallen apart And I think that Jackie is supposed to testify only by deposition. So in other words, she'll be on videotape in the courtroom as opposed to actually showing up and being cross-examined in the moment. But we have not heard anything from her since the story ran and a whole incredible tale of a catfishing expedition. I don't know what to call it. She went on where she apparently created a whole fake person to blame this person for an assault at a party. We know the party didn't happen. I just am so it's not curious isn't the right word because that seems a little morbid. But there's something so I've moved from like interest in blaming anyone for what went wrong in this case to just feeling incredibly sad, both for Dean Aramo, whose reputation I think was damaged, but also for Sabrina Erdley, the writer who screwed up in many ways, but who essentially trusted this student who turned out to be, it seems, a complete fabricator. And there's lots of second guessing and quarterbacking to do. But I do think there's a way in which journalists don't expect to just have people like make up huge fraudulent stories. We're we're kind of not necessarily always well equipped to deal with that level of um yeah, and I don't anyway, I'm now I'm becoming incoherent. But I'm just curious to I'm interested to see what this yields. Why do we still not have Jackie's real name out in the world? Why do we still call the her Jackie? Press? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know what her name is, although I guess at some point it probably was reported. I think so the usual convention is that the press doesn't name sexual assault survivors. And that was how she originally appeared to us. And I suppose that there's this lingering question, including from the Charlottesville police, about whether Jackie experienced some sexual assault in some way, even if it didn't happen at that frat, at a party, in any way, like the story she told. And so maybe because of that, there's still sensitivity on the part of the press and this shying away from her name. Do you feel like we should be using her name now? I just thought it was weird when you're talking about her testifying and that her lies are the heart of these legal cases and her sins are the heart of these legal cases for her to be able to walk with impunity in the world and not be held responsible when she is 
ultimately responsible for a lot of this is weird to me. And I, I was just surprised. Yeah, that you're right. I mean, she's don't use yeah. her name and saying, "Oh, Jackie," or you know, the blah 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 blah, known as Jackie, will be testifying. Right. I mean, there's something so sad about her and her lawyers, I should say, have fought tooth and nail against her participating in this case. But you're right. I mean, she ruined the career of these other two women. And yet she hasn't really been held accountable, I suppose. Although, on the other hand, I just feel like there's something so deeply wrong with all of this that I, I wonder if like holding her accountable is really not where we should put putting our energy anyway. Jacob, what's your chatter? My w- wife edits a magazine at the New York Times called T. It's the other magazine, not the one Emily works for. And there's a story in the issue that comes out on Sunday about the artist Carrie James Marshall, um, who's a painter who lives in Chicago, who I've kind of followed. I grew up in Chicago. I've been aware of his work for a long time. But he is such an inspiring figure, and it's tied to this big show he has opening at the Met. He is someone who sort of single-handedly decided to try to do something about the underrepresentation of black people in Western art. And he paints these really monumental pictures, which are representational scenes set in the South Side Chicago neighborhood where he's lived and worked for his whole career that are um, unbelievably, I think, powerful and moving. And he's just sort of a painter who it sort of dawned on me over time isn't just good, but really great and really important. And he's also, if you read the story in the magazine, he has this artist discipline where he's just someone who goes to work every day and he thinks being a painter is about the discipline of being in a studio. And he lives in this really rough neighborhood on the south side. He now has paintings that sell for millions of dollars. He could probably live anywhere he wants. But he says in this story, you know, he wants, and this is a neighborhood in Chicago where they have shootings. It's the kind of neighborhood you're hearing about that Donald Trump is talking about when he's talking about how bad crime in Chicago has gotten. And Kerry James Marshall says he wants kids growing up in this neighborhood to see what's possible for a successful artist. Basically, that you can live there and and depict what's going on around you and do what he does. So I just was very moved and inspired reading about this guy. And I can't wait to see this show at the Met. That sounds great. That sounds awesome. Can I just say that your wife's name is Deborah Needleman, just to give her a nice shout out? Thank you, Emily. My chatter is a, a, a three cheers for Larry Lessig, the campaign finance reform advocate, presidential candidate, Harvard Law School professor, but not not for any of those reasons. In WikiLeaks, it turns out that there is an email exchange between Neera Tandon and John Podesta uh, where they say very vicious things about Larry Lessig. Neera Tandon is quoted saying, I fucking hate that guy. She says she wants to kick the shit out of him on Twitter. Podesta calling him a pompous law professor, smug. And this all was publicized in the WikiLeaks leak. And Lessig's response was great. He, I'm going to read it. I'm a big believer in leaks for the public interest. That's why I support Snowden and why I believe the president should pardon him. But I can't for the life of me see the public good in a leak like this, at least one that reveals no crime or violation of any important public policy. We all deserve privacy. The burdens of public service are insane enough without the perpetual threat that every thought shared with a friend becomes Twitter fodder. Near Tan has only ever served the public and public interest sector. Her work has always and only been devoted to advancing her vision of the public good. It is not right that she should bear the burden of this sort of breach. It's such a great response. It's basically saying we all know, all of us know, that if our emails were 
cracked open to the world. There would be terrible things that we've said about all kinds of people, people who are our friends, people who we love, and that if they were publicized, it would be terribly embarrassing. And for, for Lessig to, to not even respond and to recognize that, you know, maybe, okay, maybe Tandon thinks this, but like this is not meaningful and to, to not register with it, with him at all is great. And I, I cheer him on for that. I, I agree with you, David. I think there should Agreed. be, I, I just wish there were more principled standing back from this sort of toxic dump. Uh, of the the Russian Federation and and WikiLeaks, and I I just think you know there's some kind of moral threshold, and obviously there are things that are so newsworthy, and I felt the same way about the Sony hack. There may be some things that are so newsworthy that as a journalist you can't not go there, but you should at least there should be a bar for participating in, in what is both a crime and an attack on our government by an enemy. Huzzah. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is, of course, part of the Panoply network. And you can check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Jacob will be happy. He chairs Panoply, too. Check everything out so that Jacob mm-hmm. is happy. Our <laughs> show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes and leave a comment and rating. For Emily Bazelon and for Jacob Weisberg, I'm David Plotz. We will see you next week in Boston. Jacob, thanks for sitting in. Thank you, David. It was fun. Mm-hmm.